0: Today's teaching comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 21-31. through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. It was the 2004 Olympics in Athens, and it was the
1: marathon. And one of the contestants, or one of the, the racers in the, in, the, in the marathon was Vanderlei de Lima, and he's really best known for his performance in this race. Here's why. He entered it uh, with no expectation, zero expectation of meddling in the event, because his personal best in the marathon was was several minutes slower than than the top runners. And yet, in the marathon at the 2004 Olympics, with about four miles left of the 26.2-mile race, he was in the lead, and he was on his way to gold. And then this is what happened, and this is why he's known for this race. A, a defrocked priest wearing a kilt who had been drinking, who was probably drunk at this point, ran out and collided with him on the road and knocked him off the road. He eventually got back up, got back into the race, ended up finishing third place. But what was most shocking is as he came Across the finish line, he was doing a victory dance. And he was smiling and looked incredibly joyful. And it shocked the the audience, everyone who was watching, because everyone expected that when he crossed the finish line, that he would have a scowl on his face, that he would be angry, that he'd be uh, frustrated that he would be crying out for justice, that he'd be making an appeal, trying to find the man who collided with him in the road. And yet he came across the finish line, the happiest guy that you could ever see. And the reason everyone was shocked is because he had every reason not to be joyful. And yet he was. And no one could figure out how he was joyful in the midst of such unfair, unfavorable circumstances. At the center of this passage in Galatians 4 in verse 27, Paul says, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, O barren one. These Galatians were losing their joy. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 15, Paul says to them, Where has all of your joy gone? Where is the blessing, the joy that you once felt? Where's it gone? They were losing their joy. Why? Because these Jewish Christian missionaries had come to town from Jerusalem and they were telling these Galatians that if they wanted to be good Christians, they had to do more. They had to get circumcised, they had to follow Old Testament rituals. And it was absolutely enslaving them and stripping them of their joy as they became enslaved to all of these rituals and these rules. And so Paul says, Rejoice, O barren one. Now why? How could they rejoice? Where was their joy to be found? Where is your joy to be found? Where do you find joy in the midst of barrenness? That word barren just means bleakness. When your circumstances are bleak, when there's absolutely no reason to rejoice, how can you rejoice? Where is joy to be found? To answer this question, we're gonna first look at the two covenants that Paul describes. In verse 24, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, who are the two women? Well, he's taking us back to the story of Abraham in Genesis. And we learn in Genesis 15 that God promises Abraham offspring that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. In other words, he's promising Abraham lots of children. The problem is Abraham's in his 80s. And Sarah is well beyond childbearing years. So by the time we get to Genesis 16 and Sarah has not conceived yet, Her and Abraham decide they're gonna go get a child through their Egyptian servant, a woman, a slave named Hagar. And indeed, Hagar conceives from Abraham and bears a a child. His name's Ishmael. Now, in Genesis 17, God reminds Abraham and Sarah, he hasn't forgotten his promise, that a child is gonna come through Sarah's womb And so he reiterates his promise that Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have offspring more numerous than the stars. And then in Genesis 21, we read that indeed God fulfills his promise. And Sarah conceives at the ripe old age of 90 has a child and they name him Isaac. So you've got here two women, Sarah and Hagar, two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Now there's some similarities between the two sons. Both sons of Abraham, same biological father. Both circumcised. uh, Both grew up in the same house, albeit 14 years apart. But there's some major differences between the two children, between Isaac and Ishmael. Number one, they had different mothers. One was born of a slave woman. One was born of a free woman. They had different legal standings. One was born a slave. One was born free. They had different births. One was born according to the flesh one was born according to the spirit Isaac's birth born of the spirit was a supernatural act of god supernatural act of god so you have two mothers two sons and what paul's saying is that these two mothers two sons stand for two covenants the covenant of works and the covenant of grace what he's saying is that one covenant the covenant of works produces slavery and misery And the other covenant, the covenant of grace, produces freedom and joy. Now, what's the covenant of works? Well, in verse 24, he says it's from Mount Sinai. This is referring to the covenant that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai when he gave his people the law, starting with the Ten Commandments, but well beyond that, to practices for worship, practices for Sabbath what they were to do in the tabernacle, how the tabernacle was to be arranged, how they were to worship. It was very detailed, right? Ceremonial laws, ceremonial regulations that they were to follow. And the primary purpose of this covenant was to show God's people that they needed a savior, that they could not fulfill the demands of this covenant. There's only one who has, it's Jesus Christ. But the purpose of this covenant was to show them that they couldn't keep them, the, the, the requirements of it. And Paul says, if you turn back to this covenant of works, it is going to enslave you and make you miserable. It's going to result in slavery and misery. Charles Spurgeon, he's a, he was a preacher in the 1800s. And he describes this slavery and misery really well. This is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but it is powerful. He says, Hagar never was a free woman. Sarah never was a slave. So beloved, the covenant of works never was free and none of her children ever were. All those who trust in works never are free. And never can be, even if they could be perfect in good works. Even if they have no sin, still they are bond slaves. For when we have done all that we ought to have done, God is not our debtor. We are debtors still to him and still remain as bond slaves. If I could keep all God's law, I should have no right to favor for I should have done no more than was my duty and be a bond slave still. The law is the most rigorous master in the world. No wise man would love its service. For after all you have done, the law never gives you a thank you for it. But it says, go on, sir, go on. The poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round a mill and never getting a step further but only being whipped continually. The faster he goes, the more work he does, the more tired he is. So much the worse for him. The better legalist a man is, the more sure he is of being damned. The more holy a man is, if he trusts to his works, the more he may be rest assured of his own final rejection an eternal portion with Pharisees. Hagar was a slave. Ishmael, moral and good as he was, was nothing but a slave and never could be more. Not all the works he ever rendered to his father could make him a freeborn son. The covenant of works brings slavery and misery. And that brings us to the covenant of grace that Paul talks about in verses 26 to 27. Look how he describes this covenant of grace. But the Jerusalem above is free and she's our mother. So just to understand the two cities that he's talking about here, the present Jerusalem, he's talking about the present Judaism in Paul's day. It was tied with the covenant of works. The Jerusalem above, that's the church of Jesus Christ. Now look what he says in verse 27. He's quoting from Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. When when Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 54, 1 about the barren one, he wasn't speaking primarily about Sarah. He was speaking about the city of Jerusalem at the current time that Isaiah prophesied, which was barren, because God's children had been taken off into exile because of their sin. And yet God comes to them in Isaiah 54 in the midst of their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion. They had made an absolute mess of things. Such a mess that now they're in exile in Babylon. And yet right there in that moment, God says, rejoice, O barren one. They were barren. The situation was incredibly bleak. You say, How can they rejoice? How can they rejoice in the midst of such bleak circumstances? Well, God goes on in Isaiah 54 to say this through Isaiah in verses seven to eight. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Their joy was not to be found in them getting straightened out because they weren't straightened out. They're in Babylon in exile. Their joy was not in them pledging to do better. Nor was their joy to be in doing enough for God. They hadn't done enough. Their joy was to be rooted in the simple truth that God was moving towards them with compassion and steadfast love right where they were at in the midst of their sin and idolatry. That's the covenant of grace. It goes on in Isaiah 54 to say, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not Depart from you, says the Lord. Let me go back to the Abraham story. When Abraham got Hagar pregnant, he was operating with the principle that God helps those who help themselves. You heard that principle before? Maybe thought it yourself? That God helps those who help themselves? When it comes to salvation, that is an absolute lie. Couldn't be farther from the truth. See, God doesn't operate this way. You come 50% of the way, and then he responds and meets you by coming another 50%. Or let me just say it this way. He doesn't even operate this way. You come 3%, and he responds by coming 97%. No, the covenant of grace says that God comes 100% towards you with his compassion and love in the midst of your sin and your rebellion. That's the covenant of grace. And that's the beauty of grace. So when Paul says here in verse 27, rejoice, O barren one, which he's quoting Isaiah 54.1, he's not saying... Rejoice, O fruitful one that's turned things around. He's saying, Rejoice, O barren one. Rejoice, you're barren. You ever feel like you're not doing enough for God? You ever felt that? I'm just not doing enough. Or maybe you ever felt you're not doing enough for your kids? just not doing enough for my kids. Or maybe, have you ever felt you're not doing enough for your spouse? Or maybe you're not doing enough at work, or you're not doing enough for your boss, or maybe you're not doing enough academically at school, or if you're in vocational ministry, have you ever felt, I am not doing enough for the Lord? If that's you and you've ever felt that, welcome to the Galatian church because there's these Jewish Christian missionaries that had come from Jerusalem that were telling the Galatians, you're not doing enough. Get circumcised. Follow those Old Testament rituals. Get on board. You need to do more so that God will be pleased with you, so he'll be happy with you, so you can earn his favor. Do more. That's what the message was coming to these Galatians, and Paul about flipped a lid when he heard it. Can I just liberate you? You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. And guess what? You never will do enough. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's just preposterous to think that can we really ever do enough for God? Of course not. We can never do enough. The covenant of works says you're not doing enough. The covenant of works says you shall do this, you shall not do this. The covenant of grace says God says I will. I will redeem you from your sin. I will give you the gift of eternal life. I will, I will, I will. That's the covenant of grace. Comes to you. 100% towards you in your sin and rebellion. When you get hold of the covenant of grace, you spend a lot more time talking about what God has done, is doing, and will do for you in Christ and less time talking about what you're doing for God. That's the covenant of grace. And there is great joy found in that. There's great joy and freedom that's found in that. Joy found in the covenant of grace is just the realization that Jesus has completely fulfilled the covenant of works on your behalf. And there's great application that flows out of this. Now, what is it? What are the implications of living according to the covenant of grace. Paul begins in verse 28 to flesh this out a bit. And he says in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Remember, Isaac was born through supernatural intervention. He was born according to the work of the Spirit. Ishmael was born through control and manipulation. Isaac, born according to the Spirit, supernatural intervention. Ishmael, born according to the flesh, control and manipulation. And what we see here is that Paul is telling these Galatians, in the same way, you've been reborn or birthed into the kingdom, not through your own works, not through self effort, but through supernatural intervention. You've been born of the Spirit not of the flesh. So we see there's two ways to live. According to the flesh, which is self-reliance, or according to the spirit, which is divine dependence. Self-reliance versus divine dependence. According to the flesh, according to the spirit. One produces freedom and joy. The other produces slavery and misery. Joni Erickson Tata became a quadriplegic at the age of 18, after a diving accident. And she describes this scene that she was in at a Christian women's conference when there was a break between sessions and she went to the restroom in her wheelchair and she was in there and there were a bunch of women in there as well. And just listen to how she describes this. One woman putting on lipstick said, oh, Joni, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish that I had your joy. Several women around her nodded. How do you do it? She asked as she capped her lipstick, and Joni said, I don't do it. In fact, may I tell you honestly how I woke up this morning? And then she went on to say, this is an average day. After my husband Ken leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray, oh Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in my chair, brush my hair and teeth and send me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't have a smile to take into the day, but you do. May I have yours? God, I desperately need you. So then one of the women said, so what happens when your friend comes through the bedroom door? She said, I turn my head toward her and give her a smile sent straight from heaven. It's not mine. It's God's. Divine dependence, living according to the Spirit, Living according to the flesh, control and manipulation steals joy. Living according to the spirit, divine dependence produces joy. Just take you back to the Abraham story for a second. What happened when Abraham and Sarah concocted this great idea to have a child through the Egyptian servant Hagar? Well, the story says that as soon as Hagar conceived, Hatred and tension broke out between Hagar and Sarah. They started fighting. And Sarah turns to her husband and says, do something about it. And Abraham says, she's your servant. You do with her what you want. So you sense the tension in the marriage is growing. So Sarah treats Hagar harshly and Hagar runs away. What do we see there? Living according to the flesh, control and manipulation produces tension. It produces frustration. It produces hatred. It produces fighting. And for those of you that are married, you can attest to that, what that produces. Now, let's go to the other side of the story. What happens when God fulfills his promise and Sarah conceives with Isaac? Well, it says after Isaac was born, Sarah says in Genesis 21.6, God has made laughter for me. When God intervenes and the Spirit works, what's the result? Sarah is laughing with joy. And so we see here, living according to the flesh steals joy. Control and manipulation steals joy. Living according to the Spirit produces joy. It produces joy. How are you living according to the flesh? How are you trying to get something that you want through control and manipulation? Are you trying to fix your marriage in the flesh by relying solely on strategies and techniques? Or are you waiting on God to reconcile your marriage through active prayer and active submission to Christ? Are you trying to fix your children through behavior modification and discipline techniques? Or are you trusting God to transform your child's heart through active prayer and active submission? This is where it is really dangerous. We can raise children like it's a formula. Parents, you can plant seeds, but you cannot change your child's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. It is a miracle. It is supernatural intervention when your child's heart transforms. Are you trying to find your future spouse by presenting unrealistic image of yourself or or changing who you are to get someone to like you? Or are you patiently waiting on God to provide a spouse for you through prayer and dependence on Christ? Are you trying to climb the ladder at work through spinning the truth and sacrificing human relationships? Or are you trusting God to handle your career and the timing of your promotions? Now you may hear that list and go, Keith, I don't know. Let me ask you one more question. Are you joyful? Is there a deep resonating joy in you? Or is your life marked by just an undercurrent of frustration and tension and unhappiness? Living according to the Spirit, divine dependence produces joy. And if there's not joy, then you have to ask yourself, and I think do some real searching to say, am I I trying to control and manipulate my life and my situations in such a way that it's just stripping my joy, taking it away? I want you to think about the situation or the circumstance that you are wanting to fix right now? What is that circumstance? What is that situation? If that situation or that circumstance turned favorable, would you be joyful? Now, you, you might be for a bit, but not long-term. Because I guarantee that if one situation turns favorable, you will quickly find another situation or circumstance that is not favorable, that will vie to strip your joy. Imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with a toy truck and it breaks and he's inconsolable and he starts crying and can't be consoled and his father says to him, He says, Some unknown, far off, distant relative just died and has given you a million dollars. What do you think that child's response would be? He would cry even louder until his truck is fixed. Because all he knows is his happiness tied to that truck. And he doesn't can't grasp a joy or a happiness tied to anything else. And we are no different. That our joy so often is tied to a circumstance, it's tied to a situation. And we can't grasp what it is like for our joy to be tied to someone where our joy is everlasting. We can't imagine what we have in Jesus Christ. And we can't imagine what it's like to have our joy tied to him. And yet Paul is saying that is the covenant of grace. If Jesus Christ did the supernatural, miraculous work of defeating your sin, of defeating the devil, of dying on the cross and bodily rising from the dead, if he did that supernatural work by the Spirit, then don't you think he has your situation in his hands? And don't you think that he has your situation, circumstance in his control? Tie your joy to Jesus. How does Paul... End this passage. What exhortation does he leave us with? Look at verse 30. He's quoting Genesis 21.10 here. He says, cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Remember, these false teachers had come in from Jerusalem and they were telling these Galatians, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. Do more so God will be pleased with you. What's Paul say to him? Cast out these false teachers. Cast them out. There's a communal command here for a church. And the command is this, that we are to help each other, help one another, cast out the functional belief that we can do something to earn God's favor, that we can somehow come 20% and he can come 80. We are to cast that out in each other's lives and preach into each other's hearts over and over and over the covenant of grace that God moves towards us compassionately in our sin. And we're to cast out the rugged independence to help each other cast out the rugged independence, the control, the manipulation, the joy attached to a circumstance, we're to help each other cast that out so that we can help fill one another with the truth that God moves towards us compassionately. And so that we can help one another move towards divine dependence and reliance on the holy spirit so that we can be a community that talks more about what god has done is doing and will do in christ for us than what we are doing for him let's pray father if we are all deeply honest with ourselves, there is a lack of joy in our hearts and our lives because there's a situation or there's a circumstance that is just less than favorable. Father, we confess our addiction to tying our joy to a situation or a circumstance. And we ask that you would because we can't do it in our own flesh, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would release us from those circumstances, those situations as our joy. And that we would be a people who live according to the Spirit, according to divine dependence, trusting your Spirit to move to act in your timing. Father, would you... Fill us with joy this morning as we hear loud and clear that you move towards us in our sin with great compassion and love. Because you've already moved towards us in our sin 2,000 years ago when you sent your son to die on the cross and raise from the dead. Father, Would you bring joy to the barren this morning? We are barren. Our situations, our circumstances are bleak. And yet you promise a joy that's not tied to those. Would you bring that joy? Would you give us that joy by your spirit? And would you fill us with that joy as we close in singing to you? We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.